This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. Welcome to Best of Not Your Century. Very special episodes coming up for the next three weeks. We're going to be doing things a little bit differently. We're going to go to three times a week for this show in the last three weeks of 2019, and they're going to be Best of Not Your Century. I'm going to present some of my favorite episodes from this first year of this daily podcast. We're going to go three times a week. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, each episode will either have one of the longer episodes that we did during the year, like, for example, the live episodes that we did, those were 20, 25 minutes, or there will be two shows in one. So you're going to get still plenty of content, even though we're only going to hit your podcast stream three times a week, the weeks of December 16th, 23rd, and the 30th. We're going to stick with three times a week in the new year with original episodes. We've been daily all year. We're going to try three times a week, at least for a little while in the beginning of the new year. I'm hoping to get back to daily pretty quickly, but we've got some person power issues and some uh, other assignments for me that are going to keep me from being able to do this show five times a week. So today we're going to hear two of my favorite episodes. They both have to do with one of my favorite subjects, freedom of speech. One is from the 1950s. One is from the 1960s. So both of them from an era that I can kind of picture. It wasn't too long before the start of my life, but uh, the photographs are black and white. Men were wearing suits. Women were wearing dresses. So it was a little different from what I grew up with. And uh, if you're my age or younger, what you grew up with. We're going to start in 1957 with the obscenity trial around the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg, one of the great poems of the 20th century. Allen Ginsberg was not on trial, as you will hear in this episode of Not Your Century. October 4th, 1957. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked... Howl and other poems. Allen Ginsberg's booklet is not obscene. That's the verdict of Judge Clayton W. Horn in San Francisco Municipal Court. The Chronicle's David Perlman writes that the book aroused the police department and the city's literary bohemia for varying reasons. But the judge says it's not lewd and it can't be censored. His ruling is greeted with applause and cheers from a packed gallery that offers, quoting Perlman again, the most fantastic collection of beards, turtleneck shirts, and Italian hairdos ever to grace the grimy precincts of the Hall of Justice. Who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull. Allen Ginsberg wasn't on trial. He was in Europe and wouldn't find out about the verdict for a few days. It was a different poet in the dock. Lawrence Ferling Getty, who hadn't yet published his first book, A Coney Island of the Mind. He was there as the owner of City Lights, bookstore and publishing house in North Beach. He'd published Howl and other poems, and an undercover cop had bought a copy in the store in June. Also on trial, and also acquitted, Shig Murao, the clerk who actually sold the book to the cop, got fitted with a new pair of bracelets for his trouble. Both men could have faced six months in jail and a $500 fine. In a 39-page decision, the judge laid down a set of rules that he said should guide the police department in the future when its staffers go prowling for smut. 
He noted that Howell had a lot of what he called unorthodox and controversial ideas. Coarse and vulgar language is used, and sex acts are mentioned. Notably for the 1950s, that included gay sex. But unless the book is entirely lacking in social importance, the judge wrote, it cannot be held obscene. The lead defense attorney said that every book that was ever worthwhile was condemned somewhere by someone. Ferlinghetti had a way with words and may have had something interesting to say, but his actions spoke volumes. He shook a few hands, and then he raced back to North Beach to stack the windows of city lights with copies of Howl and other poems. That was a challenge to the best method of censorship America had to offer, according to Judge Horn. He wrote that governmental censorship is dangerous and should be held in tight rein. But the people! They are invited to act as guardians of public opinion by not buying any particular work of literature, sending it to oblivion, never to be heard from again. For Howell and other poems, that was more than a million copies ago. Howell had made its debut two years earlier at a reading in a mechanics garage turned art gallery called Six Gallery on Fillmore near Filbert. Kenneth Rexroth, an older poet, organized the event featuring five young poets, including Ginsburg, Michael McClure, and Gary Snyder. Rexroth, by the way, had coached Ginsburg to improve the poem that eventually became Howell. Ginsburg had showed him an earlier draft, which was called Dream Record, 1955. Rexroth said it was too formal. It's like you're wearing Columbia University Brooks Brothers ties, he said. The rewrite is where Ginsburg found what became his signature voice heavily influenced by Walt Whitman, with long lines determined by the length of Ginsburg's breaths. He said the lines were musical. They were built on bop. Who got busted in their pubic beards returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York? That reading at the Sixth Gallery is the stuff of legend. It came to be known as the coming out party for the Beat Generation. Jack Kerouac was there two years before he published On the Road. He dramatized the scene in his novel The Dharma Bums. Also there, Neil Cassidy, the model for On the Road's hero, Dean Moriarty, and Ferlinghetti, who sent Ginsburg a telegram the next day offering to publish Howl. The Sixth Gallery reading and the obscenity trial were dramatized in the movie Howl in 2010, with James Franco as Ginsburg. Allen Ginsburg died in 1997 at the age of 70. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, still the owner of City Lights, is 100 years old. His latest novel, Little Boy, was published in March. The writer of the Chronicle's story that day, David Perlman, is also 100 years old, and he just retired two years ago after 60 years as a science writer, starting right about the time of the Howell Obscenity Trial. You can hear him interviewed on the Big Event podcast on the episode dated January 16th, 2019. Now we're going to stick with the theme for our second episode today, free speech. Threats to free speech don't always have to do with obscenity. Of course, sometimes it's politics and campus speech was a big deal. In the 1950s and especially in the 1960s, things were very restricted. What you could say and do on college campuses, that began to change a little bit in the 50s. There was an episode that's not going to be part of this uh, Best of Festival, but it was from the 1950s, the uh, Robin Hood green feather movement that started at Indiana University in the 1950s. That was a reaction to on-campus McCarthyism. This is 1964 in Berkeley, California, 
and it's the opening moments of the free speech movement. And what they were protesting against was restrictions on political speech and political action on campus at the University of California. There used to be rules about what you could say and do on this public university campus. It sounds absolutely ridiculous today, but uh, this was just a half century ago, and that's how it was, and that's what they were protesting against in the free speech movement, which began in the middle of Sproul Plaza in a police car, and here's that story. October 1st, 1964. A 24-year-old former mathematics grad student named Jack Weinberg is sitting in a car on the UC Berkeley campus. He's eating a sandwich. Soon he'll take a nap. Then he might eat another sandwich. He's got no place to go, and even if he did, he wouldn't be able to get there. Sure, he's sitting in a car, but he doesn't have the keys. It's not even his car. It's a police car, and it's in the middle of Sproul Plaza, surrounded by 3,000 people. There's also a guy standing on the roof of the car which is starting to buckle. That guy's giving a speech. He's a 21-year-old philosophy major named Mario Savio. These are the first moments of the free speech movement. The trouble on campus had started the day before, September 30th, when Savio, that's the guy standing on top of the car, had been among eight student activists who'd been suspended by Chancellor Edward Strong for breaking the university's rule against direct political action on campus. Distributing literature was okay, but collecting funds and recruiting demonstrators or members of political organizations was off-limits. Savio was doing that. In the spring, he'd been involved in successful demonstrations at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. Those were protests over racial discrimination in hiring by the city's hotels. He'd gone to Mississippi over the summer as part of the Freedom Summer Campaign, and when he got back to Berkeley, he went to work collecting money and organizing for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Now, on the 1st, Weinberg, that's the guy sitting in the car, had been doing the same thing, tabling on behalf of a group called CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. The campus cops asked him to stop. He said no, so the cops put him in the squad car, parked a few feet away from his table. Students quickly surrounded the car, chanting, Release him! People lay down on all sides of the car. And Mario Savio climbed on top and gave a speech that electrified the crowd, which grew quickly. We were going to hold a rally, Savio yelled. We didn't know how to get the people, but we've got them now, thanks to the university. Savio demanded that the chancellor reverse the suspensions and allow political activity on campus. And he suggested that the crowd follow him into Sproul Hall, the administration building they were all standing in front of, and quote, sit on the desks and the chairs and make it impossible for them to continue their work. He'd return to that theme a few months later in his most famous speech. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The sit-in went on for the rest of the day and into the night, and then into the next day, more than 30 hours, with a number of speakers taking turns on top of the car. Finally, the administration agreed to let Weinberg go and to open negotiations with the student leaders. Savio climbed back on top of the car and said to the crowd, I ask you to rise quietly and with dignity and go home. And they did. 
Sabio's speechmaking during the sit-in made him a star and a leader over what would be named, a day later at a meeting of student leaders, the free speech movement. Sabio called Weinberg, the guy in the car, the key strategist of the free speech movement. Weinberg also coined one of the 60s' most famous catchphrases, and he did it in the pages of The Chronicle. In a story in November, he told reporter James Bennett, We have a saying in the movement that you can't trust anybody over 30. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.